A Happy Bureaucracy by M.P. Fitzgerald Narrated by Gary Bennett Author's Note Strewn between drug use, groin malice, and cursing on a level tantamount to sacrilege are gratuitous mentions of bureaucracy. These bureaucratic references may not be for the weak of heart. Chapter 9 It was a grim throne for an even grimmer king. This was the sort of thing that CEOs before the war could only dream about making for a symbol of power. It was far more effective than a red muscle car, and far more perverse than filling that car up with girls barely turned women. It was not something that anyone alive then with power had dared to make, because it was simply too honest and overt in its symbolism. These men of power from old would have immediately been ousted as the psychopath that they were had they sat atop this monster. They did not dare then. Now? Now was an age where team-building exercises meant killing wild dogs with scavenged junk. Now was an age where men literally chained young girls to the hoods of their deathmobiles. Now was an age where power play was simply a pull of the trigger. It was a renaissance for psychopaths. And this throne? Well, this throne was the motherfucking Mona Lisa. An equal amount of human teeth and spent bullet casings spiraled up a concrete base. So tightly packed were these teeth and shells that one would assume that there was no concrete behind them holding it together. They would be wrong in this assumption, but only because the smallest amount of concrete that could have possibly shown through had. This base formed into a chariot with the large molars of men and women and the shells of high-caliber bullets at the bottom petering up to the baby teeth of children and smaller casings at the top. Two long and thick chains lay limp at the side, and monster truck wheels that the base of the throne sat on were held in place by cinder blocks. The base was three feet high, and although teeth were easy to find in any of the many cities now turned into a radioactive crater, one got the very distinct feeling that the artist behind this beast had used only the freshest of ingredients. The cherry on top was not the seat, no, because the artist designed it as a two-piece sculpture, one that could be separated, but needs both halves to bring it all together. The seat was an old leather Cadillac driver's seat. The piece that completed the throne was the man who sat on it. The colonel. Overweight, this slug of a man sat on his throne with the bored listlessness reserved for only the most slothful. The lower jaws of men protruded out of the toes of his black boots. Whatever material his pants were, they had tattered to a web-like structure over the metal casings he wore on his hips, culminating into a foul-looking codpiece. A white suit jacket, although torn and fringed at the elbows, was actually bleached and sat on top of an equally white vest and collared shirt. A long flab of skin, riddled with tumors, fell from his chin, creating a waddle that a chicken would cringe at. It should have obscured the Confederate flag bolo tie underneath it, but being the unsightly thing that it was, 
it was hard not to notice every detail in and around it. This was the colonel, a man so cruel that the slavers around him declared him king without question. His brutal throne and his decaying body on top of the rubble of an old fast food restaurant. He sat there like a plucked and mutilated rooster, observing from a roost of madness. Arthur wanted to ask him about his deductibles. Old habits. Arthur was pushed toward the colonel, albeit still around 20 feet away. The men who had escorted him there turned away, either out of fear or disgust, or both. A voice like buttered grease boomed from the colonel. You've been asking questions you should have been asking me, boy. Definitely, sir. We can't start with you and then move on to the others, Arthur bellowed back. What? the colonel said. Should I come closer? Yeah, that'd be nice, Arthur obliged. The four men who brought him there stayed behind, still avoiding the gaze of the cruel rooster. Once he was within five feet, a terribly close proximity for a smell that was as equally horrid as the throne, Arthur pulled up his clipboard. You wanted to see me, sir, Arthur said. Yeah, I heard you were going round taking a census in my little neighborhood, said the colonel. The last two guys, see, one was too quiet, didn't say much I wanted to hear. And the other? Well, he talked right too much for my liking. One of them has their head on a pike now. Can you guess which one? Arthur, confined to his fate, was less scared than he should have been. Was it the talkative one? He said with genuine curiosity. The colonel laughed at this, a sound that had more wheezing than mirth. You know, I don't remember. That was only a couple of days ago, and this old head of mine, well, it might as well have been a hundred years. Arthur expected him to stroke his waddle like it was a long beard. How you like my shoes, boy? The colonel continued. Made them out of the hired guns they brought. Arthur's heart collapsed into his bowels. The thought of Robbia meeting the same fate threatened tears. He fought them away, trying his best to act professionally. I think they are pretty trendy for a man of power in the United Wastes, Arthur said with hollow commitment. You think so? The colonel sounded surprised. No one round here appreciates all my efforts, he said, his hand creeping up to his chin. He's gonna do it, Arthur thought, with a dreadfully pleasant expectation. I know why you're here, boy. So let me tell you what, the colonel said, now stroking his waddle. I knew it, Arthur's mind howled in a mix of victory and gross despair. For every question you ask me on that there sense ass, I get to ask you one myself. Does that sound fair to you, boy? Arthur tried not to gag as the colonel ran his fingers over a particularly large tumor. Having conceded he would not be alive to administer the census, Arthur agreed to this proposition enthusiastically. He nodded his head vehemently and clicked his pen. The table's name and occupation were preemptively filled out. So Arthur moved on to the next question. 
crossing out apartment, house, and mobile home, and updating with what he felt was appropriate. Mr. The Colonel, sir, is this terror throne, A, owned by you or someone in your throne hold with a mortgage or loan, B, owned by you or someone in this throne hold free and clear, C, rented, or D, occupied without payment or rent? Arthur asked, reading off of his modified Form D-61. The colonel stroked his flab contemplatively. You know, before now, I just call it my sitting chair, but I reckon I like terror throne much better. Good on you, boy, but I own this throne wholesale. Arthur put a check mark on B. My turn, the colonel said. How many of y'all scouts are there in my neck of the woods? Arthur looked up from his clipboard, concerned. I don't know, but I honestly didn't think two others would make it out here. So, at least three? It was hard to tell if this pleased the colonel. Mr. The Colonel, Arthur said, continuing with the task in hand. Were there any additional people staying at your terror throne on or before April 1st? This seemed like an unlikely scenario, and even he would be the first to admit that but it was hard to imagine anyone sitting on top of the throne with the colonel. But it was also hard for Arthur to imagine that he would be talking to a man with a mutated waddle. So, perspective? The colonel's eyes indicated boredom. His hand returned to the top of his chin to begin stroking his unsightly flab again. You know, I don't think anyone here really knows what month it is. We sold off a woman named April not too long ago. But no, son, I'm the only bastard that sits here. No additional people, Arthur read aloud as he marked a check on the form. My turn, the colonel said. When does your gang of raiders plan on getting at us? The question surprised Arthur. He shifted his weight awkwardly, his throat parched more than ever. Sorry? was all that he could manage. Rage filled the colonel's eyes, a molten hot stare that threatened to lay waste on everything it met. Yet the rest of his body remained slothful and relaxed. When he spoke, Arthur was surprised to find the hideous man's voice steady and calm, which only served to make him all the more terrifying. Let's be honest with each other, boy. This here sense-ass is intelligence gathering. It's a poor attempt, but we all know what the IRS does. They are the Iron Raider Society, the meanest and largest gang east of here. You're here to count up my men to see how many troops I got. Now, when does your king plan on doing the raiding? I can see why you're confused, Mr. The Colonel, sir but the IRS stands for- I don't give a rat's ass what it stands for, he bellowed, his voice borrowing some of the rage from his eyes. Arthur winced. We know what you do. You steal from job creators, job creators like me. Not enough to ruin me, no, you're smart about that. You know that if I thrive and make calories as a business owner, that you can come back for more. Your army is going to come to my front door at some point. When? I don't know, Arthur said. Some of the rage subsided in the colonel's eyes. Arthur wondered if he stored his anger in his waddle. I believe you, 
the colonel said. Grunt like you should know anyways. This'll go much quicker if we don't bullshit, son. Now, I think it's your turn for a question. Arthur looked at his clipboard. The next question said, is person one of Hispanic, Latino, or Spanish origin? But Arthur wasn't sure if he dared to ask that question to a warlord sporting a hate symbol on his bolo tie. Suddenly, and for the first time in Arthur's bureaucratic career, the questionnaire did not seem to matter. Did everyone in the United Wastes feel this way about the IRS? He had heard Robbia say much of the same things, except she wasn't a monster who sold people and claimed to be a job creator. Arthur was merely doing his job. But just how different was he to a raider? Also, weren't there more important questions to ask? What will happen to my enforcer? Arthur asked, his frightened emotions not hidden. Looky here, the colonel said, shifting his weight in his morbid throne for the first time. Now there's a question worth asking. If what my boys are saying about her is right, why, I reckon that pretty black thing will sell off right quick. The colonel licked his lips. If she don't fight back, that is. He had his chance. She had practically begged Arthur to turn around, and begging was something he figured she did not do often. Wouldn't it have been nice to just camp out with a brutal, foul-mouthed, intelligent, and beautiful woman? Hell, she had somehow tolerated and even liked Arthur, which was rare. Instead, he had gotten them captured. He had ensured that his new friend's greatest fears would be played out every day. And for what? A census. My turn, the colonel said, folding his meaty hands over his metal codpiece. How many of y'all are there? And don't bullshit me. Arthur could lie, but it occurred to him that he was now the third IRS agent to be interrogated, so his numbers should really match the others. But more importantly, the public didn't have a right to the number of people the IRS employed, being a federal institution. Hundreds, Arthur said, looking down at his feet. Does person one sometimes live or stay somewhere else? His form prompted next. Instead, Arthur asked, What? What will you do with me? Look at that, the colonel said, slapping his knees. Now I get to be the one who says, I don't know. Laughter crept out of his mouth, his waddle jiggling. You've been real nice, boy. I'll give you that. I don't think I'm gonna kill you. I reckon I'll do with you what I did with the old man. It's not often that free inventory walks in here. The colonel stuck two sausage-like fingers in his mouth and whistled shrill and fierce. Arthur was suddenly aware of how much space was around him that he could probably run and not get caught. But could he run and not get shot? And was that better than getting caught? A man wearing nothing but a loincloth and biker's helmet crawled through one of the fast food restaurant's windows from a side that had not collapsed. He was emaciated looking, and like the colonel, he was also riddled with tumors. A large book was tied to his back with belts. He looked like some sort of mutant turtle. He climbed up to the colonel and got down on all fours before him, facing away. It was like the book was a tabletop and he was the legs. 
The colonel rose with less effort than Arthur would have guessed, opened the book, and removed a pen from his codpiece. Looks like I get to write something down too, he said, clicking his pen. He licked a sausage finger on his other hand and rapidly flicked through the pages. The title of the book read, Inventory and Sales. Despite the heavy portents of doom weighing down on him, Arthur could not help but feel a little excited to see this book. An insane urge to audit the book itched inside of the lining of his skull. Old habits. The colonel found the page that he was looking for. Day 200, admit one slave, free inventory, he said, looking down at Arthur with a cruel smile. The guards behind him started making their way closer, surrounding him like they had done before. The man with the rifle was only about five feet away now. Arthur's mind volunteered. Guns go up, don't frown, fall down. But that only worked if there was an enforcer. His indecisiveness destroyed what little hope he had in running, in dying quickly. He was now completely surrounded. The colonel raised his hand and the guard stopped. With dark mirth, the colonel looked at Arthur. I get one more question, he said, kicking away the emaciated table, the jaw of a dead enforcer flying off his boot from the force of the kick. What you do what you do, boy, he asked. There were a million answers to that just a day ago, Arthur felt passionate about. It was his civic duty, his job. It was something he liked doing. He was born into it. Somebody needed to collect taxes. He had done his job without question. He had done everything he was supposed to do. And instead of being rewarded with the promotion of safety that was owed to him, he was standing at the foot of a psychopath in charge of monsters. He had spent his entire life counting numbers. And now he would be sold off. And he would be counted. I don't know, Arthur said. The colonel laughed. That's what I thought, boy. That's what I thought. The colonel looked down at his guards. Take him to the south fields and put him in a cage next to the old one we caught yesterday. You two catch that hired gun of his and bring her to me first. There was lust in his eyes. The men obliged. Of the four guards that had escorted Arthur earlier, only the man with the poorly drawn tattoos and dumb Dick Rick remained. Dumb Dick Rick shoved Arthur forward. He did not fight it. The two men did not have to force Arthur along. Arthur was despondent now that he had a new career of slavery ahead of him and thought bitterly that he had been one his entire life. The fast food restaurant behind him grew smaller, but the bloated rooster's gaze could still be felt. At least my father had the sense to die in this world, Arthur thought soberly. He hugged his clipboard to his chest in despair. Then they took it away from him. About the Author M.P. Fitzgerald is an author and humorist dedicated to injecting the feverish gonzo style into fiction. You can get Memos from the Wasteland, which is the official prequel to this book, free. It contains hilariously bleak office drama, Robbie's diary, and Arthur's last letter from his father. 
To get your copy, just head over to his website at mpfitzgerald.art. You'll also get free updates on future audiobooks and more. We hope you have enjoyed A Happy Bureaucracy by M.P. Fitzgerald, narrated by Gary Bennett. Text copyright 2019 by M.P. Fitzgerald. Production copyright 2021 by M.P. Fitzgerald. Music by Dustmice. Available on all streaming services and dustmice.bandcamp.com.